You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For May 3rd, 2017, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Even before peak oil entered the popular imagination, some concerned observers and analysts had already begun to speculate that energy transition would be a failure because the declining production of oil, our most convenient and energy-dense fuel, would slam the brakes on the global economy. And soon after that, the declining quality of natural gas and coal reserves would suck the remaining life out of the economy. We wouldn't even have enough money, some thought, let alone the energy, to build enough wind and solar farms and beef up the electrical grids and install all the other elements of energy transition while also keeping the economy moving faster than stall speed. The intuitively appealing idea at the core of this view was that the net energy of renewables was so much lower than the net energy of the fossil fuels they would have to replace that the total energy budget would have to shrink sharply possibly so much that it wouldn't even be possible to run the global economy as currently constituted. This idea was based on some early research into various fuels energy return on investment, or EROI, a concept we first introduced in Episode 7. Those who haven't heard that one may want to listen to it first, but briefly, EROI is a ratio, also known as a net energy ratio, which is the quotient of the total energy a fuel or technology produces divided by the energy invested in producing that fuel or technology. But as research on EROI continued and evolved into a broader approach known as life cycle analysis, or LCA, being used in a field now known as biophysical economics, new findings began to challenge the earlier data. For example, research on solar PV back in 2013 found that it had a net energy ratio of two or less, and one research team thought it might even be negative. So if society requires fuels with a net energy of five or greater to function, as some early research suggested, clearly solar could not be part of that solution. In fact, it might even hasten the energy death of the human species. But then the efficiency of solar PV modules started improving, their materials requirements started falling, solar projects started getting sited in sunnier locations, and voila. Most recent energy studies began to show that the net energy of solar might be as high as 12. Similar results were obtained for newer studies on wind. And meanwhile, society's uses of energy were also changing, becoming more efficient and more electrified, while the grid itself was becoming more optimized, more flexible, and able to run on increasingly higher shares of variable renewable power. In short, energy transition had just plowed ahead, becoming more viable by the day, despite the doubts of the early investigators. Now, about a decade after those earlier projections, we find ourselves in a very different reality than some of us expected. It turns out that we can run human society largely on renewables. We first explored the question of how far renewables can take us in episodes two and three, and we'll revisit that question in a future episode. 
and we need to recognize important advances in the science of estimating net energy and comparing different fuels and uses if we want to keep our views current. However, there are still some observers who have failed to do so, who are still clinging to their old data on renewables and their old views of impending societal collapse. And that opens up a whole new debate. One of the researchers at the cutting edge of the new net energy science is Rembrandt Copellar, a doctoral research student at Imperial College London's Center for Environmental Policy, where he is working on improving the accuracy of electricity system simulations. He's also a research associate at the Institute for Integrated Economic Research, where he works on spatial supply and demand modeling of resource flows in city regions within disciplines called urban metabolism and energy economics. His latest research suggests a far more optimistic view of the potential for energy transition and the long-term prospects for humanity's ability to rely on renewables, and he's going to lead us into a deep dive into the latest and greatest views on net energy. We'll also discuss his new book, The Tesla Revolution, Why Big Oil Has Lost the Energy War, which will be on shelves less than two weeks from now. Then, in the news segment, we'll discuss an exciting development for offshore wind in the German North Sea, new record low prices for solar in India, the latest clean coal flameout and the latest clean coal darling, an update on Boulder's utility municipalization effort, and a remarkable milestone for transition in the UK. But first, our conversation with Rembrandt Kopelar. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Rembrandt, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for having me. Excellent. I'm eager to discuss your recent work on the net energy of solar and other technologies because it really elaborates on some of the topics we discussed previously with Dave Murphy in Episode 7 and with Kerry King in Episode 32. But first, let's talk about your new book, The Tesla Revolution, Why Big Oil is Losing the Energy War. I thought it was a really handy guide to the past and the present of the global energy situation, and I found it very thoroughly researched. It could actually serve as a textbook, I think. And I learned some pretty surprising things from it, too, like the fact that the main user of solar in the 1980s was actually the oil and gas industry because it was ideal for powering offshore oil rigs. I had no idea. But at the same time, I was kind of surprised that the book wasn't really about electric vehicles or the car company Tesla, although it certainly mentioned them as part of the global energy transition. And I'm not entirely sure it actually explained why big oil is losing the energy war, although it discussed some of the reasons or even what the dimensions of that war are in your mind. So why don't you tell us why you wanted to write this book and what you wanted readers to learn from it and why you called it the Tesla revolution if it wasn't about EVs? Thanks. That's a very good starting point, Chris. So my background is coming from looking at oil and diving big into the sort of the oil question, the future of oil. And then about 10 years ago, I wrote a book that was only published in Dutch in the Netherlands called The Permanent Oil Crisis, which sort of scoped out the whole peak oil situation, situation with alternatives to oil and so on. I co-wrote that with my co-author Willem. And we felt that there's a huge need for an update, basically, that is an update on all these sort of developments that are going on across the world in this sort of energy transition spectrum. There's a lot of developments that are going on and it's very difficult to keep track of them. And you can see that from other books, like for instance, there's this book that was recently published called The Switch by Chris Goodall. And they only cover a part of the spectrum. So the outset we had is, okay, we want to see if somebody wants to quickly go and within say half a day, read up on what is the latest in solar, what's the latest in oil, what's the latest in electric vehicles, uh, and quickly read upon what's going on. And then why we call it a Tesla revolution is really because Tesla encapsulates all these developments in pushing things forward and is becoming the sort of fort of this time in 
being the driving motor, not just behind EVs, but also springing out now to solar and batteries, which is the driving motor of what's going on today. Well, that makes perfect sense. And again, I really did think it was a wonderful overview of the past and the present energy situation. You had a lot of stuff packed in that, which is really a fairly condensed book. So you and I know each other from the peak oil community originally. You were an editor at the Oil Drum, and I was a regular participant and an occasional contributor to that site. And we seem to be, at least by my count, among the few from that community who have actually moved on to really engage with the energy transition and grapple with getting it done instead of just complaining about how it will be too hard or ineffectual or dismissing it because they have some doomer belief that our transition efforts will be undermined by some horror or another. So I want to talk about where you stand with the concept now. We don't actually need to review what Peak Oil is about. I think we covered that more than amply in episode 13 with Mason Inman. Two and a half hours of that. Thank you very much. But you do in the book review the important evidence for Peak Oil that conventional production did in fact peak in 2005, that we're having trouble replacing reserves and overcoming the decline of mature fields, that new sources like shale oil are expensive and difficult, that discoveries of new fields have been declining for decades, and you know, all the rest of it. And you admit actually in the book that you were too pessimistic about shale oil and other newer sources back in 2008, and so was I to be sure. And yet, we're hardly out of the woods, are we? I mean, peak oil still seems to loom on the horizon, whether you think about it from a supply or a demand standpoint. And in the book, you lay out two possible paths into the future from here. One in which high oil prices lead to renewed investment in unconventional oil, and another where production declines because investment in new production has been insufficient, particularly since prices crashed starting in 2014. But actually, I want to put out there a third scenario, which is where prices stay around this $50 to $60 range, high enough to keep the moderate level of exploration production going and where we can probably meet demand if it doesn't grow too much. But then prices don't get high enough to really crimp demand or set off a new round of frantic activity and cost inflation. So the prices and production effectively would level out for a few more years, a kind of Goldilocks scenario, which would be neither too hot nor too cold. I mean, why not? I think that really depends on the kind of time frame. So if we're talking about the oil markets today, I think what a lot of people within the sort of pessimistic side of the oil analytical communities didn't see, especially was the sort of shale oil and the flexibility of it, where you just got this new source that wasn't just, you have a deep water field that takes about seven years to develop, and there are not enough of them, and the investment is huge to get that off the ground, but you have this new source that comes in that's not just quite relatively abundant, but it's also very flexible and that you can put a lot online very quickly. So I think that's the big sort of game changer aspect of it. And you see that also today where you could quite rapidly, if you would flow a lot of money into shale oil right now, you could put a lot of wells online, the kind of ducks and the uncompleted wells, and you could increase production. The question is, in that sense, is that enough? So if we're talking about, say, in the scenario range, like three to five years from now, is that enough to meet that growing demand? You're going to need more than just an additional one million or two million barrels per day or 4 million barrels per day. I think that's a key element, one of it. And the second one is that we're already seeing that at the current price range, the only shale oil part in the US that's really increasing is the Permian. The others are either flat or slightly declining still. That's right. So what I would expect then is still that the bottom line is that most of these developments require 
at least $10 per barrel or maybe higher, probably higher for like deep water oil fields and also higher for tar sands. All the oil majors seem to be pulling out of the tar sands right now. Shell already did it, Canoco has done it. Others are also thinking about it and selling that off because it's just still too costly. Even though costs went down a lot, I mean, we have to recognize that the main cost driver in shale oil has been far faster completion of wells, like going down from 30, 40 days to around 10 days now, or in that kind of order of magnitude. And that technology in Canadian Tarsons also have dropped costs from like 90 to about 65 or 70. But that doesn't mean that these sources aren't more costly right now. And there's not much reason to suggest that we have even more such efficiency improvements in that order of magnitude. Well, I mean, on the price point, it's clearly a fast-moving target, especially against the glacial timescales of writing and publishing a book, which I know all too well. But we should note that production costs have really fallen a lot in the past few years. I mean, back in 2014, just three years ago, new marginal production from shale or deep water or what have you needed an easily $80 to $100 a barrel to break even. And that's what your book reflects. But both the majors and the shale producers are now saying that they can pretty regularly break even at $40 a barrel. And I'm actually going to link to an Art Berman piece about that in the show notes where he observes that this isn't necessarily a good thing. He says, sharply lower break-even prices are 10% technology and 90% industry bust. So he's asserting that companies are writing down wells with poor performance, basically cutting their way to profitability, which implies that there will be even less supply from the tight oil sector in the future than some, including the EIA apparently, based on their latest outlook believe. But again, suppose we remain in this new Goldilocks zone around $50, $60 a barrel for another three or four years. Would that change your outlook on future production? Well, I don't think that we will change in the Goldilocks zone. And I don't think that exists. That's how I see it. I think like you can read a break even prices. That doesn't mean that you generate sufficient money to invest a lot more for things to come online in, in three, four, five years. And you're still seeing now, it really depends a lot, especially on shale oil, it depends a lot on how much investment is flowing. And it's not just the investment that comes from the oil companies themselves. They have to loan a lot of money. You see some more movement now where now there's news with recently came out, for instance, in JP Morgan starting to lend again with oil prices being around $55 per barrel cautiously. But the floodgates haven't opened yet. We're still going back from about $250 billion in CapEx in 2015, 2016, that has been reduced in the CapEx end. So I don't think that unless prices get higher, and I think they will very likely, to above $60 per barrel, how much higher than that, I don't know. But that's required for investments to flow. And I think that's also what the market is moving towards. And then you can get some movements up and down, of course, over time. But I think the bottom line is that we need for sufficient investments to float for 50 billion or 100 billion extra investments every year into oil that that is required. Okay. But even as we talk about these prices at this $50, $60 level, what's necessary to encourage shale oil, that's really just one side of the supply equation, right? The other side is OPEC. And I think a lot of OPEC is quite happy at $50, $60 a barrel. And they've cut recently, which has 
propped up prices, I suppose, a little bit. But I think that there's a really big question still hanging out there, which is maybe as unanswerable now as it was when we were hanging out on the oil drum <laughs> all those years mm. ago, you know, of exactly what the future of OPEX production is. Especially the big question that always hangs over the Gawar field in Saudi Arabia. Do you have any fresh thoughts about that? There's not much more analysis that's been done that's more exhaustive than what was there, I think, a few years ago, unfortunately. Yeah. The only thing is that the situation has changed in Iraq, obviously. It's been more positive than, I think, what most people in the oil industry expected in terms of the, their ability, despite lots of fighting, lots of problematic situations. There's some stabilization in big parts and with ISIS, so in the Kurdistan area, especially. Yeah. But the big question is, we should look at this, I think, from different time frames. So we have the time frame right now, we're in the next two, three years, where there's quite a lot of flexibility. There seems to be picking up demand growth in oil, where you could have a scenario where things balance out quite well, oil prices between 50 and $70 per barrel. But then at some point, you need to have that additional investment that needs to come on stream because we just had a few years where there's a very low investment to be able to cover the shortfall that you need to meet because you have the declines in fields and where you need additional deep water fields off the coast of West Africa, where you need additional deep water fields in Brazil, where you need additional oil coming in to grow it. Because one of the core theses of the book was that we found by analyzing data from Ristat Energy and other sources is that nearly all the growth came from unconventional oil since about 2005, and also including deep water. So that includes everything below 300 meters of depth. So for oil supply to grow, it means growing shale oil, growing deep water, growing extra heavy oil, regardless of where it is. That can also be in Iran with lots of extra heavy oil and so on, for instance. But yeah. you would need that portion. So that needs to happen and that investment needs to flow. And if we get too long around this zone of $50, $60 per barrel and you don't get enough investment, you'll get problems in a time frame of five to nine years. And then the third part of the equation is the sort of long run where you're talking about what's oil demand going to do in the course of, say, 2025 to 2030. And that's yeah. becoming increasingly uncertain because of the whole electrification yeah. situation. Yeah. We've discussed on the show a little bit some of those analyses which attempted to figure out how much impact on oil demand vehicle electrification will have. And certainly a subject that I'm very interested in. It's a big part of my work. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. The full episode covers much more. In order to hear the rest, point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and become a member. Annual subscriptions start at just $60 a year, and monthly subscriptions are also available. It's like subscribing to your favorite magazine or newspaper, but we prefer to think of it as buying us a pint once a month as a way of saying thanks. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. So please join us today and support our advertising-free show featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. 
Dong Energy, the Danish company we discussed in episode 17, has won the right to build three offshore wind projects in the German North Sea in the latest German auction. What's newsworthy about this is that the company made a zero euro bid per megawatt hour for two of the projects, meaning that they will not receive a subsidy on top of the wholesale electricity price. For contrast, the third bid in the auction was awarded 60 euros per megawatt hour. In total, the three projects will add 590 megawatts of capacity. And by the time the projects are built in 2024, the company expects to deploy offshore wind turbines that will produce 13 to 15 megawatts each, which is twice the capacity of the current generation of wind turbines. It's hard to know what wholesale price of electricity the new projects will realize in 2024. But Case van der Loon, who you'll remember from episode 34, told me that current German wholesale pricing is €3 Euro cents per kilowatt hour now. But in the future, given the rapid expansion of offshore wind capacity in the North Sea, prices fall to zero on windy days. Which makes this first unsubsidized German offshore wind farm even more amazing. Item 2. India has set a new record low price for solar power. A bid by Solar Direct Energy India, a subsidiary of the... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XC Network.